My name is Ian Rowlands. And I'm Colin Williams. And uh, this is a podcast about the human connection with the non-human world beneath the stream. So in this podcast, Colin, I want to explore something which uh, I find particularly fascinating, which is um, communication between us and the non-human. Mm. Um, and particularly related to the animal world, but not strictly animal world. I'm going to kind of branch out all over the place. But I wanted to begin with um, this phrase... Uh, Long ago, when animals could speak. And it's a phrase that you hear so often in the old stories, the indigenous stories. And it sort of refers to a time when the boundary lines between the animal world and the human world were less clearly drawn than they are now. So all of us must know some Inuit or Native American tale where animals had a voice or they were able to speak. And that's what fascinates me. It's like, how have we lost that connection, that sense? And for me, it speaks of a deeper rooted disconnect from that world. Sitting Bull, the famous Native American uh, tribal chief, the Hunkpapa Teton Sioux, um, he once said, every seed is awakened and so is all animal life. It's through this mysterious power that we have our power of our own being. And we yield to our animal neighbours the same right as ourselves to inhabit this land. And I think the fact that we think of these other creatures as not having the power of communication, so we give them less rights and we trash their world. Mm. That's that's my thesis, I guess, in, in approaching this. What's your take on that? Well, it's a, it's a topic I'm really looking forward to exploring, this whole this whole notion of interspecies communication and not just... Perhaps not just deliberate interspecies communication, not, um, but as you say, something that's a lot more natural, a lot more um, every day. And uh, yeah, those those words of sitting bull kind of hurt, don't they, in, in some ways? Because if only we were still um, yielding um, to the non-human world the same opportunities to live in the space as we as we afford ourselves, I think the world would be a lot better place. So I'm I'm really looking forward to exploring with you the history of this in our imaginations and and what people are doing in more recent times to expose the um, uh, the, the idea of communicating with other species other than our own. Yeah, an Inuit tale from Greenland. And it begins, um, these are birds. When ptarmigan and duck were men, they walked upon the ice together. And of course, ptarmigan and duck go on this adventure. And... Um, and I just love that phrase that when they were human, when they were when they were men, um, and it sort of suggests that um, they expressly stated that they had the form of men, but they were animals at the same time. And and for us modern humans, that's that's an immediate dilemma for us. You've got to be one thing or the other. You can't be both. But for indigenous people, you could be both. Years ago, I read the um, fantastic Tales from Ovid by Ted Hughes, 
and uh, I lent it to a friend who was kind of interested in reading it, had seen it reviewed and, and felt it would be interesting. And, he, and he, he, kept, he gave it back to me about two days later saying, I only got partway through it because people kept turning into animals. <laughs> <laughs> and, and 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 yeah, in in our mythologies, in our human history, um, there seemed to be a much more natural interplay between human and animal than there is today. Um, some of that is, I think, potentially about us taking a certain scientific distance from the animals, not not wanting to do them a disservice by com- comparing them too much to us. Um, but also, some of that is a is a loss of that kind of thin veil. Um, between the human and non-human that our forebears have felt much more keenly than we do. Yeah, so there's, there's clearly, I was going to touch upon the science there because um, uh, there was, a, I think it was a peer-reviewed paper, February 2011, that um, reviewed a border collie named Chaser. And Chaser learned over a thousand words, recognised over a thousand individual words and commands. It's a, so it's in the uh, Behavioural Processes Journal. And of course, we know about Kanzi the bonobo, uh, a kind of primate trained by a psychologist and knowledge of more than 3,000 symbols or lexigrams. We can teach them the way we speak. Mm. Why is it so inconceivable that they also have a language and can speak in quite complex ways? That's right, and there's something very uh, it's that those stories and those that that science is intriguing um, because we also then potentially fall into the trap of believing that animals communicate with us when we give them permission to do so, um, rather than us perhaps being open to the idea as you as you've so well described that this. This could happen all the time for us, and uh, we might just need to learn to listen. Well, we know that in, I know that in many indigenous traditions, I mean, raven is the classic, you know, um, it's both a motif, but also a deeply uh, connected creature with many, many tribes who can receive messages from raven. I mean, on a simplistic level, you could say, well, a raven could lead you to um, prey, something that's been killed by a bear or a wolf or whatever. Ravens will circle over it with the carcasses, but there's ample evidence that ravens will um, will actually go and chivy wolves, go and pull their tails and peck at their fur to encourage them to go hunting. So the the link between raven hunting, humans hunting, is probably very strong, and ravens can call at humans. I've had that happen to me. You know, what are they saying? Is it a is it just an alarm call, or is this some sort of communication that we're not recognizing when you have a symbiotic relationship with a you know with a bird and a mammal in that case you know i mean i think you were mentioning is it honey guides you were talking about with me earlier yeah and that's and i think it's well observed in the particular subspecies the greater honey guide sub-saharan africa and there's lots of there's footage online of this where there's been a i guess an almost timeless relationship ever since it's two species evolved together i suppose us us and them of um, honey guide birds um, leading humans to wild hives um, and wild colonies of bees, where the kind of, um, I guess the payback is that as the humans then gather the honey, um, they leave um, combs of honey um, for the honey guide. And so, and, and, that, and that's such a simple, well-known um, example, but it makes my head spin mm-hmm. uh, with the sheer weight of, uh, history and the depth of history that have meant that 
modern humans, or perhaps even proto-humans, um, have always had that relationship in that part of the world where they will follow these birds to this honey, take what they need, leave some honey for the bird, and that every honey guide bird knows that's what happens, and those humans that live close to them knows that, that what, that's what happens. It, I find that extraordinary and moving and remarkable. Mm. It seems like a short step between that and some sort of communication that's more than um, physical, it's more than body language. It actually, there might be, you know, it could be a core, mm. like I said with Raven. And then what does it step over into that? There was uh, a friend of mine um, who lives in Tucson. He 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 had friends from um, Tohono tribe there. And uh, he said a friend of his from the tribe, he went out with him and there was a, a red-tailed hawk circling overhead. And this guy started singing to the hawk. And he said, I kid you not, the hawk came down within feet above our heads. Now, was the hawk just intrigued by the sound? That's what uh, mm. we might rationalize it in. But uh, he said that the song was hawk medicine passed down through his family, that wow. particular song that was sung to the hawk. Yeah. So really, really intriguing. And and I just wanted to top it off. I can't escape the fact that we're recording this uh, in the studio where you live, Colin, at the foot of Watership Down. Mm. Of course, a famous novel in which lots of animals are speaking. Yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And you only have to mention yeah, Rajah Kipling's Jungle Book mm. or Narnia, the world of Narnia and C.S. Lewis. And you think, we we have filled our culture with things in which animals speak to one another using human language actually because yeah. then we can understand it if it's yeah. in a novel but you know we 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 have a lot in our culture that, that allows animals to speak but then when i think of you you mentioned about those animals talking to each other but not to humans but that put me in mind of the books by john macefield so the midnight folk and box of delights and and there there's um uh, a very free interplay between humans and animals talking to each other but normally they only talk to the children in the story oh, so there's a sort I, of i hadn't thought we, about we, that yeah we we, we kind of uh, the children can still hear it and the adults can't it's a bit like believing in father christmas mm -hmm. isn't it, it, it it's uh it's don't, only don't shatter any illusions <laughs> Colin. I, I, I apologize for younger listeners <laughs> as if you know kind of there's kind of the idea of interspecies communication kind of fades with a loss of innocence mm -hmm. particularly crosses my mind when I think about um, whale song or creatures that are very other to us and I think in the mammal world I can't, I can't imagine anything more other than a whale yeah. which is you know it's able to like in the case of a sperm whale be, be beneath the surface of the water hold its breath for an hour and a half mm. and go down to you know 3,000 meters or something it, it inhabits an entirely other world with an other suite of senses what is going on in the mind of the whale? And how do we... How, the only way that we get an insight into that most of the time will be through the through the sounds that they make and how mm. we interpret them. So have you heard whales, dolphins? 
I have many times, and obviously, if you uh, with with in previous podcasts, we've talked about natural sounds, and I shared that one of my most affecting natural sounds is the blow of a whale. I've also been in places where certain vocalization of animals can be heard, or or perhaps more of perhaps more accurately described as felt rather than heard. And I have had experiences in in pitch dark ocean nights where there's been sperm whale in the water around and one begins to fancy one can hear or, or partly feel a the, 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 the clicking um, sounds that they make as they find their way around or as they hunt for prey or even as they just explore their surroundings or if they explore the boat that I was on um, and those sorts of things and um, and and I think you've probably been in circumstances where you've heard vocalizations of whales as well. And again, it's one of those mind-blowing things that uh, that you can, if you wanted to, you could turn it into almost anything. And but I never wanted to go as far as turning it into something so prosaic as just to just to be a communication, just to be a signal. But uh, I've always wanted that. And and I think we're scratching the surface of understanding that those things are more than that. Um, that they are linked to emotion and that they are linked to um, a set of things that we thought were exclusive to us, or a set of feelings and reactions that are exclusive to us. But we find through these songs and their uniqueness and their uniqueness to individuals that those whales' voices are as unique to them as our voices are to us and that the structure of their songs is as unique to a particular um, pods or families of whales as as they are to to us and I think those things are wonderful and they begin to give us insights into just how um, just how patronizing we as humans can be um, towards animals and their motivations hmm. and I've, I love the way you describe that I think that's really powerful I find um, I guess because I'm quite immersed in that world and I know quite a lot about uh, whale vocalizations and uh, Everything from, um, I once uh, spent some time working with an orca killer whale researcher in Norway, who, and she was really detailing their foraging, hunting behavior, particularly around um, the herring shoals in the, in, the, in the winter in the Norwegian fields. Um, but it's an interesting thing because every so often for a scientist, that boundary is transgressed. And she said, after working with these orcas for some time, and they would come around the boat quite close. She was on a small boat. The and it's a matriarchal thing, orcas, so that the females lead the pods, they lead the clans. And she said the, the the female orca came up to the boat, stuck its head out of the water, and squawked and squeaked with its larynx at her. Mm. And that is not a way that those animals communicate. They're using clicks that are beamed out of their forehead uh, in nearly all their communicate or actually we don't entirely know exactly how they're communicating after how they make the sounds um but it was clearly communicating with her it wanted to say something to her and she was really perplexed like that because most of the time she'd been studying how the whales behave their particular recording their dialects recording the uh, echolocation sounds they were making in order that they were able to fathom out their world. But th that was a moment where that boundary was crossed. It's interesting because uh, going back to the whales, you know, you've got... Um, you got a blue whale able to make a very deep sound that travels 
conceivably thousands of miles across the ocean. And a, a lot of evidence that suggests that whales are so large in order to transport very big brains and feed brains, which are very energy hungry, um, simply to process sound, simply so that that communication between each other that we don't quite fathom out yet. So one whale recorded calling and speaking, quote, to another whale a thousand miles away. They're able to process either the mechanics of how the sound travels through the ocean mm. or the nuances of what that other whale has called back and said. I understand too that there's a cert- there can be a certain amount of recognition there as well. No, I was I was I was struck by a, for me a desperately sad anecdotal story is um, is Corky the orca. So Corky uh, famously lived in captivity, was taken from Iceland in the wild as a calf, ended up in uh, Marineland, a kind of a theme park and. Uh, um, with other whales, not from Iceland. And of course, that's what many of these captive facilities have done, is put whales from disparate parts of the world where considerably they, they don't understand it. They cannot communicate in any uh, acoustic way with one another because they don't speak the same dialect or the same language. It's it's kind of, there might be other ways they can communicate. But um, anyway, Corky was, was in the pen and, and the trainers had this, dubious bright idea of playing corky the sound of icelandic orcas and and the whale began to shake and shudder and of course we don't know what a whale crying looks like but it looked very distressed and it might have known individual whales it would be like you know being in prison and hearing the voice of members of your family being played to you. I'm guessing, I'm speculating there, but it's, it's a terribly sad mm. story, that one. But it? it's desperate, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it is desperate. And I, and I suppose, you know, and I know, I think it's true for you too, I'm not speaking for you, but I know that a lot of the thread that runs through this podcast for me is about fathoming out our our lack of relationship with the non-human world and, and trying to get to the bottom of it. And there seems like a, a really raw example of... What have we done to this creature? Shouldn't be so shocked. But it's it's a fascinating one. And of course, whale song. Whale song's another interesting one, isn't it? We we assume that whale song is like bird song. You and I are great admirers of uh, David Rothenberg. His music graces the the beginning of most of our podcasts and and, and the end of them. And um, and David's written very uh, innovatively and eruditely on the song of insects, the song of birds and the song of whales and trying to um, communicate with whales through his own mm. musicianship. And so uh, Thousand Mile Song by David Rothenberg is one of my favourite books because it really touches upon that aspect of whale song. And when he explored um, the song of birds, um, he touched on something I hadn't really thought about. was just a lot of birds sing for no apparent reason. Uh, what's that all about? Who are they communicating with? Are they communicating with themselves? It's outside of the breeding season. Sometimes choruses of males will just, in the autumn, get together and sing to each other. It's so human-like, isn't it? You're a musician, you know why? Why do you feel compelled to produce music? Well, it's a 
I'll just pay tribute to David Rothenberg as well because uh, um, I've heard him perform live and uh, as I say he was kind enough to let us use his music uh, as a theme tune to Beneath the Stream is David Rothenberg who's a fantastic um, clarinet player um, a, a really top draw musician and it's an interplay of his of his instrument and and the sounds that the sounds of a killer whale um, and so I think as a I think as a musician he, well you kindly called me a musician <laughs> somebody who plays a few musical instruments um, music to a certain extent is meant to be played and enjoyed in company I I spent uh, a lot of years a lot a lot of my musical years playing live um, kind of solo kind of you know just just me and an instrument on stage um, but. As a musician, when you play with other musicians, um, there is no question, it makes you better. Um, your, your timing becomes better, your creativity becomes more honed, um, your, your need to be more in sync, um, your need to be more, the interplay between you and the other musicians to be more appropriate um, and, and more inventive. Um, they all become, all those things become heightened when you are playing with other musicians because you're learning new things all the time you're trying to either fit in or in my case you're trying to keep up holding on by your bootstraps with these other musicians that are much better than you and you're 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 desperately trying to to stay in the game there somehow um uh, all of those things make you better and so i don't i don't i can't begin to imagine why um animals come together to do those things um but uh, and I and I don't know whether some of the reasons I've exposed <laughs> yeah, about why yeah. humans do it, and and there's also the sense of enjoyment, the sense of camaraderie, the sense of being. Um, the the wonderful um, Welsh language music and poetry festival, the Eisteddfod, that that goes on regionally in Wales and then nationally in Wales every year. Um, uh, uh, Eisteddfod is a difficult word to translate. I'm I'm not really a Welsh speaker, but uh, my research has suggested that. Um, Eisteddfod is a difficult word to translate because it seems to bring a sense of gathering. So, so lots of people come together to see each other perform in these in these festivals. Um, but also that that sense of gathering within the word also has a sense of coming together to be. Um, and so I love the fact that some of those things we might have learnt from um, <laughs> or in, inherently are part of. Um, what we have observed and what we have seen and what is in our in our shared the bits of our DNA we share with these creatures that inherently there's something in there that means that coming together to vocalize to speak to sing to perform to dance um, are we're inheritors of the same threads I love of, that. of necessity. So I love that, and it's a beautiful segue, which you didn't realise, into, so why would we sing at or with, or play at or with, the non-human world? So what, what compels a singer, and there are famous cases of people singing at seals, mm -hmm. or playing the cello with nightingales, what is it that compels human musicians then to straddle that border, to forge a communication with what, if you 
if your hypothesis is correct, you know, stimulated us producing music collectively and joining collectively, seeing the natural world do it, then we try and go back to the natural world and communicate with it through something other than straight spoken language. And that made me want to touch upon the work of Jim Nolman. And I, I want to turn to you Jim. for a bit of Jim Nolman. I didn't really come across the work of Jim Nolman and interspecies.com until I'd connected it through David Rothenberg's work. But you know a bit about Jim Nolman, don't you? Yeah, I've, I've even had some communication with Jim Nolman many years ago. How appropriate. Um, yeah, because I, I, I became, again, through the work of David Rothenberg, who in his book Thousand Mile Song talks a little bit about um, Jim Nolman, who was... To a certain extent, also a musician, and to a certain extent, a pioneer of this idea of interspecies communication. In, but within the idea of of Western music, um, and Jim Nolman himself um, recognises and pays tribute to the fact that he is just an inheritor, really, of some ideas of interspecies communication from um, indigenous peoples around the world who, for millennia, have understood interspecies communication, and and had relationships with animals, especially when it comes to song and animals, um, that, again, we're, we're, Jim Norman recognised he was just kind of rediscovering, really. But Well, let me, let me just butt in there. Okay. He, he describes himself as a composer of music for theatre, a conceptual artist, and an environmental activist. And I'll just give you the title of two books to preface this thing. Playing Music with Animals, Interspecies Communication of Jim Norman with 300 turkeys, 12 wolves and 20 orcas is one title. <laughs> uh, a more succinct title is another book called The Charged Border. Yes, um, yes, which anyway. is a wonderful book. Right. And, and the book I'm very familiar with, it sits on my shelves here, is a book called Dolphin Dreamtime. Right. And, and if Jim is listening to this, uh, we, we pay tribute to him because he's, he's, he's opened up a whole world for many people, sure. which is uh, yeah. extraordinary, really. And yeah, other bits of uh, Jim Norman's uh, musical adventures. You mentioned turkeys, so yeah, he has sort of played, played with turkeys, played in amongst uh, bison and cattle. Can I just just dive in there Please again? Because I I didn't realise this. I knew a bit about his his playing with turkeys. I thought it was a happy accident, and maybe originally it was. But uh, I didn't realise he was commissioned by Pacifica Radio to record music he made with turkeys as a two-hour taped concert <laughs> of background music played during a thanksgiving dinner <laughs> uh, so so i mean arguably his work has sort of you know uh, more in common with the composer john cage yes than it does yeah, say yeah. with the yeah, yeah. you know experimental yeah. biologist john lilly from the 1960s yeah. and, and he's also experimented with um with dolphins as you say mm-hmm. uh, a remarkable life spent uh, trying to unlock the mysteries of of the sounds these animals make um how we interpret them and also how we can interplay with them to begin to deepen our understanding of of what's possible. Um, there's, in fact, from Dolphin Dreamtime. May I just uh, sort of read a little passage from Absolutely. Dolphin Dreamtime? Absolutely, yeah, no, great. This passage from Dolphin Dreamtime um, uh, is where Jim Norman talks about an example of some indigenous peoples of the Kamchatka Peninsula, um, which is kind of uh, over in sort of eastern Russia. Um, and he says, within the barren interior of the Kamchatka Peninsula of northeastern Siberia lives a people who are closely related by culture and race to the North American Eskimo people. The day-to-day diet of these Kamchatka people is generally quite austere. Starvation, especially in the dead of winter, is evidently an accepted and acceptable fact of life. Two times a year, when the huge flocks of migrating ducks fly through their territory, 
there begins a period of great feasting and celebration. Through the centuries, a body of music has developed for this ceremonial period, a music derived in both name and melody from the calls of these ducks. The duck is the totem of the tribe, and the ducks sing something like this. And we have a piano in the room, and Jim Nolman has notated the call of the ducks that he's talking about in a certain way. So I'll just play that. Now, that doesn't sound like the call of any duck I know, um, but, but nonetheless, that, that's how he's notated it. Now, the songs of the Kamchatka people serve two purposes. Firstly, they are essential to the success or failure of the hunt. If the songs are chanted properly and in the spirit of genuine communion, the ducks lose all fear of men and venture close enough so that a goodly number can be killed. This ensures the success of a proper feast. The performance of these songs is a highly ritualised and exacting art, one that requires both a refined vocal technique as well as a thorough command of what is known as the duck energy. To the perceptions of the master duck seducer, <laughs> it must appear as if the ducks themselves demonstrate a kind of altruistic willingness to sacrifice the bodies of some of their own avian tribe so that their human cousins might live for another year. Who can be sure that it isn't so? Beautiful. And, and and in the spirit of that, and not, not necessarily paying to Jim Nolman, isn't it, really, but also, I think, to the work of David Rothenberg, and I, and I urge everybody listening to check out both of them. I Because I'm passionately interested in that interplay between science and art and its ability to speak to different people across the values landscape of humanity and, and reconnect them, I, I like to see both approaches, you know, and I, I'm fascinated by the the scientist exploring the rationality of that, but also the artist pushing the, the envelope a bit with it. And uh, and and I, I read something that, that, that Jim Noms read, and he's still doing this work, of course, and I think it's really valuable because he, he says here, the objective vantage, the objective, really, view of in the natural world is overwhelmingly promoted by our education system and is the basis for the way that we view the environment. Um, the ground of an economic system that denies intrinsic value to the natural world and plunders it. And he's contrasting that with, and he says later, don't make the mistake of dismissing the artist's view as new age fluff. That's a hoax, you know, that despoilers of nature want you to hear. You know, we interact with animals rather than act upon them and encourage both a bond that demonstrates a much needed balance in nature. We relate to habitat as alive and sentient, as much as a place possessed of physical features. And I think um, what an interesting way to get, to stretch the boundaries of the way that we view these things. Mm. There's a great quote from um, Henry Beston, who wrote a book called The Outermost House about Cape Cod. And uh, he said um, in that book that we, that we patronise the animals for taking form so far below ourselves, but therein we err and greatly err. In a world older and more complex than ours, they move finished and complete, gifted with extensions of the senses we have lost or never attained, living by voices we will never hear. I carry that quote around with me um, because I became familiar with it years ago and I've used it so many times that I don't need, I don't need to look it up anymore. <laughs> I, can just sort of, I can just sort of repeat it almost like a mantra to myself that, that, I, don't, that I don't forget... Um, what the non-human world is about that I don't forget just how complex and 
just how unknown and unknowable um, it is. Um, but at the same time, recognising that, that that we're not two nations. We should never feel as if we're two nations split apart, the animals and us, um, but that we're both, as, as, as Henry Weston goes on to say, we're both caught in the net of life and time. Hmm. Um, and... Uh, and and as you say, I, th- I think I think these people who are exploring these boundaries um, can express that beautifully sometimes in art or music or song or poetry or, or, or words. Nicely said. It kind of make, leads me on to because I wanted to talk about. Um, the way that we view plants and there's an unknowable mm. uh, you know an unknowable part of the natural world in terms of its communication ability but one in which we would not be here without them <laughs> you know everything i mean i'm sat here looking across at you and you've got you know clothes often that are woven from plants we're drinking tea there's a wooden desk uh, we're breathing air that we wouldn't have without the plants so you know plants are intrinsic to us and, and yet we don't understand so scientists are just beginning to touch those boundaries about the sort of um, that plants can sense one another's biochemical messages in the soil. So through the roots of a plant, they can detect when another plant is being attacked by insects or when one is close or near and they're secreting chemicals into the soil. The roots. So whole networks of trees are networks. You know, they are linked the roots entangle with one another. So, and when you look at the the map of root systems of trees, you know it's kind of got that neuron-like human brain quality under the soil. So, there's a lot of cutting-edge science on how plants communicate, uh, including through sound. So that's that's interesting. I was I was you beat me to it because I was I was going to ask you. It's not an area I've explored and not an area I know much about. But of course, so far we've concentrated on. Animals, birds, whales, insects, bison, turkeys, mm-hmm. whoever it might be, that, that can actually vocalise, can actually make a sound that we can hear. And so therefore we think well, suddenly we've got a, a route of communication through sound waves that, that, that is open to us. Um, and I suppose I'm aware of sort of uh, certain plants who, when they, when they disperse their seeds, they... They give an audible pop, mm-hmm. don't they? Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah. Isn't there, a, isn't there a balsam plant that Himalayan balsam? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's an invasive species here, but mm. it pops as you walk by it, doesn't it? Yeah, so you and, brush uh, it, and, and the seeds, and the seeds explode yeah. out of these things. Um, but apart from those kind of reproductive things, are, are there plants that make sounds? Then do they? Well, I mean, I'll, I'll, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll take you out to the edges of what you might feel comfortable with, which is that the writer David Abraham. He speaks about the wind rustling through leaves of trees. Mm. So it's making a sound. Is that individual tree making a distinctive sound or, uh, compared to the, the aspen next to it? It certainly sounds different to the pine tree. Yeah. Um, and, of course, you and I'm making sound right now by passing air through my vocal cords and larynx. You know, it's the control of air is, is giving me a voice. So, so some people, and David Abraham, uh, of course, uh, well-known author and Becoming Animal, one of my favourite books of his, uh, talks about plants having a language in, in that sense. Um, but of course we talk about, people have talked to plants for a long time mm. and, and say that it's beneficial to plants. I mean, famously, Prince Charles, much derided you know, years ago for talking about talking to plants. People have played music to plants and they appear to thrive 
better than other plants. There's a whole set of interesting um, peer-reviewed experiments. Um, uh, check out a book by Dean Radin called Real Magic, right. um, which is really looking at uh, extra sensory perception in, in the broadest sense of that word, I suppose, the real sense of that word, um, where seedlings of plants in a double-blind test were blessed by Buddhist monks and some not. And then in completely symmetrical growing conditions, those that were blessed grew twice as well. Wow. So it's really interesting. Yeah. So what were they responding to? Was it a... Was it? Uh, and then we were touching on a whole se section here on human consciousness and what uh, what that is and, and what it can impart and what intention means and what that might create in something. But perhaps we haven't got time for that in this podcast. But even if you talked about the sound speaking kindly to a plant there seems to be a lot of evidence that it will its growth will thrive as opposed to um speaking angrily to a plant <laughs> where it doesn't thrive um and and it, it, it's not all woo woo stuff because there's some really interesting there's some interesting science around it you know it's sort of uh you know, we are. I, I read that John Wyndham's Day of the Triffids. Yeah, you ever read that? Of course, I did. Yeah. So, so the yeah. Triffids can hear. So, yeah. uh, at a point at which the whole human population has been blinded by some devastating, perhaps uh, nuclear satellite that's exploded in the atmosphere, so everybody's gone blind. The Triffids, these walking plants that can hear, escape from where they've been kept for their oil, and they can hear better. You know, it's that kind of like thing. In the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. You know, but anyway, they, they have an advantage over the humans, so they can hear. But it does seem that plants can hear. Uh, I, I, I was lucky enough to do be in a workshop with a wonderful percussionist, Evelyn Glennie, hmm. once. And uh, it was just not, not many of us in this workshop. I think I kind of signed up for the sort of first workshop of the day where everybody was still having breakfast at the hotel buffet or whatever, and it was just... Not, not many of us have, and, and Evelyn Glennie. And, and Evelyn Glennie, um, for those of you who don't know, she's profoundly deaf, um, but is considered to have been one of the world's truly great percussionists. Of course, because she's profoundly deaf, all of her musical knowledge and all of her um, musical uh, ability comes through being able to interpret um, vibration and being able to interpret the, the feeling and pulses of sound um, because she can't hear the sound moving through the airway, so she feels everything through her body. Yeah, I, I'm, I suppose I'm open to the fact <laughs> that plants, I know we talked about a work of fiction there with Day of the Triffids, but uh, I'm open to the fact that, that if plants make or receive noise, that they receive those communications through other things than just waves passing through the air. And that is intriguing about how they're receiving it. So uh, so the scientist Monica Gagliano was, was, was somebody I was reading her work just a couple of months ago, and um, she's struggled initially to get papers published. It seems so out there, but it's now peer-reviewed papers suggesting that plants are indeed communicating one another by sound. I find that really, mm. really fascinating stuff. It does take us into woo-woo territory. I did warn you we were going there because um, <laughs> uh, because there's a couple of books I, I, I urge you to check out. Uh, I used to go to a, uh, a conference called Plant Consciousness. Right. And that was, you know, that was going to test your boundaries, really, because there were practitioners from all over the world convinced that, uh, that they, or indeed we, are able to communicate with plants in ways beyond the 
electrochemical and, and through the roots. So Plant Intelligence and the Imaginal World by um, Stephen Harrod Booner is kind of an interesting book. And Pam Montgomery has written a lot about this. And I won't touch too much on their work. But one of the speakers who had a profound influence on me was um, a guy named Kurakindi, who's an Ecuadorian shaman. Uh, and actually, he was fleeing Ecuador because uh, the petrochemical industry. He'd been at the forefront of, with his uh, indigenous tribe, trying to resist the advance of you know oil exploration into the Am Ecuadorian Amazon, and was in fear of his life. So he'd come to Europe, and uh, um, and had married, and was living in I think living in in Holland actually. But um, he came to speak in the UK. And um, and he was a fascinating guy, you know, spoke very lucidly about the battle to protect the creatures, the trees, his home, his people, in a very moving way. And then spoke about the day when he heard the plants speak. And it was very hard, really, as an audience to disentangle those two things, because for him, they were completely interconnected. So he'd felt the calling to be a shaman. He was training with shaman in the community, and uh, and he described being in the forest one day, and having been trying to train himself to open his mind, that he suddenly could hear the voices of the plants speaking to him, and that guided his work from then on in terms of being led to find where the medicinal plants were or uh, all sorts of things. But it was um it was a very uh, a very powerful real world. It, it wasn't just um, a presentation that encouraged you to believe in that concept. He actually spoke about it in terms of preserving the place that he lived in, mm. and, and it, it'll always live with me because he were there were tears on his cheeks as he spoke about that day when that when that happened, and yet that had not sent him off into some world where he couldn't come back and also address the the clear and pressing issues that were raised by how are we going to combat the march of industrial progress into these into these areas and he was very um skillful at motivating and animating people around that too Interesting stuff. Mm. Um, so I'll just I'll just carry on with the woo woo stuff because I'm looking at your face and thinking, yeah, Colin's digging this for sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, it, yeah, and it's you know one of the reasons we do this podcast is so that we can challenge ourselves well, a bit in yeah. in uh, in what we what's possible. I I, 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 what I, we, what I we can accept. Or I not. love it. It's sort of a, what's what's that. Uh, What's that Frank Zappa quote? I'm trying to remember it now. Sort of, uh, the mind is like a parachute. Yeah, it works best when it's open. Yeah, yeah. So, so we'll, we'll go with that. So, yeah. um, so David Abraham is one of the writers I most admire with Becoming Animal. He talks about. Um, he was actually. Um, he's a quite gifted magician, sleight of hand magician. You know, and he used to travel in Asia and able to uh, make his way around by entertaining people. You know, make a bit of money, and it was a great way he found to break down cultural barriers. But he went out to Nepal wanting to study and train with um, shaman or sleight-of-hand magicians out there to see if he could stretch his skills. And I think had a an in-depth, sort of like a two-month period living with this man and his wife 
um, during which the shaman encouraged him to become a raven. <laughs> um, he was teaching him to meditate and, and uh, try and go with this and imagine it's always hard to imagine he would start by getting him to focus his attention on a on a rock but then try and bring your attention back in in the air in nothing and focus on a spot exactly halfway between that rock and you it, it it's a very i find it a very hard thing to do so we had him doing this for weeks on end it, it sounds really fascinating you must read the chapter in the book and in the end, he said, right, we're now going to go and sit with the ravens. And I want you to focus that similar level of attention just short of the raven. And then gradually in and into the raven. He, and he describes very brilliantly, whether it's fictional, whether it really happened, mm. of him focusing attention like a little laser beam out and suddenly into the heart of this raven. And as the raven took flight, he, in his mind, was the raven and was gone with the raven, was looking down on himself. So where does all this leave us, Ian, with communication between the human and non-human? Um, I, I think it leads us to um, us being insulting to other beings. <laughs> That's where I would say, because um, if, if we're not talking with them, but we're talking about them, I'm sure that many indigenous people would struggle with that concept. It's sort of, um, we're talking about them behind their backs. <laughs> as if they're not participants in our lives. And maybe that's what I'm kind of getting at really, which is allowing them to have a voice that they can communicate with each other and potentially we can communicate with them, gives them a more active participation in the life of the planet and the life that we all cherish. So whilst we value tool making, construction, computers, software, uh, and we think somehow that that um, we study non-humans to see if they're as intelligent as us. They can't do those things, so they can't be as intelligent. Are they intelligent like we are? No. And therefore, we win. <laughs> we are more intelligent. Um, are we intelligent like they are? Do we have their senses? No. But we don't care about that. That doesn't count. And I think there's, for me, there's some interesting thing about crossing that boundary about the notion of interspecies allows us to step beyond the view that uh, the rest of the life on the planet is somehow dead and it feels no pain. Mm -hmm.